if you ever find yourself waiting to board a train in Luana, Angola, a city in Central Africa, or a country in Central, Angola being the country in Central Africa, Luana being the city, should you ever find yourself waiting to board a train there, do not look at the beautiful, shiny board at the top of the room that tells you ticket prices and departure times for trains. Though the board looks new, though the board is shiny and fancy technology, the information on it is incorrect. You see, the train station in Luena, Angola, went through a significant renovation about a decade ago. And electricians from another country installed the uh, uh, operations board that was supposed to display all the information about trains, when they leave, how much tickets cost, and all of this. And they did, and they set it up for them, telling times and locations and directions and all of these things. There was just one problem. Before they went home to their home country, they forgot to tell the good people running the, the train station the password to change the board. So now the blessed workers at the Luana Angola train station have to repeatedly tell people, no, do not look at the board. It is wrong. And they have to tell them prices have gone up since 2012. That would be quite frustrating, quite disorienting as a traveler. Sometimes, perhaps, you have found yourself in a situation where you were traveling or you were waiting to go somewhere, and then your understanding of when the trip was happening or where the trip was going was suddenly altered or changed in a manner that you did not anticipate. In fact, it's even possible that you consider yourself to be a Christian, you are a Christian, and yet your understanding of where you are going as a Christian, and I don't mean like, like heaven and eternity, but where you are going, what you're to be doing now you could be fuzzy on. You might be looking at that board showing old times and destinations when in fact the Lord Jesus needs to correct you in your understanding of what this life is about and where you are to be going. Thankfully, he does this in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. In fact, he gives us a, 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 a parable that is intended to exhort us in how to understand the Christian life as we wait for Him. What I will argue from this text is that we must spend our lives investing the gospel in every sphere of our life and our world. Let me say this again. Spend yourself investing the gospel in every sphere of your life and world. Now, when I say spend yourself, I don't mean just money. I mean, I mean pouring out the totality of your life, investing the gospel in every sphere that the Lord has placed you in. Follow along as I read from Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him 
and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Spend yourself investing the gospel in every sphere of your life. And world. Now, if we're going to spend ourselves investing the gospel, you might begin by asking how this parable begins. What exactly as Christians are we waiting for? What are we preparing for? There's a reason that Jesus told this parable. Verse 11 tells us that he was approaching Jerusalem, and those who were traveling with him, do you see that in verse 11? He was near to Jerusalem, and he told this parable because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. See, those who were traveling with him are thinking, this is it. Jesus, this one who has come, he's going to usher in the kingdom of God. He's going to kick out the Roman, Empire, uh, uh, Roman occupiers. He's going to uh, free Israel from her bondage. He's going to be coronated king, the one that we have longed for since centuries and centuries and centuries ago when King David departed. We will be rescued from our, from our enemies and salvation will finally be ours. And Jesus does what he often does. He shifts expectations from the sensational to the faithful, from the fast burn to the slow process. He moves our eyes from our dreams for his purposes, which are good, by the way. Or excuse me, he moves our eyes from our dreams to his purposes. Sets our eyes on him and not what we want from him. But he does this by telling a fascinating, even difficult to grasp parable. Remember, parables are stories meant to communicate a larger point to be understood by the audience. Now, there's background context that will help us to understand this parable. This parable plays upon a significant event in the recent history of Israel. Before Herod the Great died, he split up his empire among his sons, including giving Judea and Samaria to prominent areas in which the people of Israel and the Samaritans dwelled, giving those lands to his son Archelaus. But in the hierarchy of the Roman Empire, Herod's will for his son to reign over these lands 
had, was, was due to the, or, or was, was subject to the approval of Caesar Augustus back in Rome. Now, what you need to know about Archelaus was that he was a petulant, impulsive ruler. He so desperately wanted to be king over these regions that his father left him. But he had a brutal, violent streak about him. One such instance, there had been a riot in the temple one Passover. And in response to this, Archelaus had over 3,000 Jews slaughtered. That, and events like that, combined with Herod the Great's own unjust track record, led the people of Israel to say, "Um, we don't know that we want this guy to rule over us. So in an intriguing event, Archelaus came to Rome in hopes of being made the king, crowned the king over this region by, by Caesar Augustus. But the people of Israel sent a delegation of about 50 to Rome to appeal to Caesar to not make Archelaus the king. Caesar Augustus considered the arguments of both sides, Archelaus and his supporters wanting to make him king, the people of Israel saying, no, do not make him king. And Caesar Augustus deliberated, and ultimately he reached a conclusion that nobody was really pleased with. He determined Archelaus would be appointed to a kind of probationary position of rule. He wasn't king, but if he proved himself and if he ruled well, then he would one day be crowned king. Unsurprisingly, given his track record, Archelaus did not rule well and he never became king. So this parable that Jesus shares has similar characteristics, but it's not about a childish, petulant, insecure little man who wanted to be king. Archelaus was nothing but an empty suit. To use an idiom from Texas, he was all hat and no cattle. But this parable is about Jesus the king of kings, where Archelaus left for Rome hoping to come back with his kingdom, but he did not. Jesus ascends to the throne of God, and he will return with his kingdom. And so this explains what we read. Follow along in verses 12 to 14. He, being Jesus, said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Now, do you see in verse 13 how this nobleman gave each of his servants a mina? Now, a mina was an amount of money equivalent to roughly three months' wages. So he tells them, do business, engage in work, invest this mina until I return with my kingdom. So the question before us, if we're going to understand this parable, is what exactly does a mina represent? What does it mean? Well, if you look, every servant of the nobleman received one mina. Ten servants, ten minas. Jesus is the nobleman, his followers are the servants. I believe the mina here in this story represents the gospel. It represents this message that as Christians we have received, as Christians we have been transformed by, and this message that we steward and have a responsibility to proclaim to others, to those around us and to the world beyond us. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this whole parable probably sounds quite wild. If I can let you in on something, to those of us who are followers of of Jesus, there's parts of this parable that sound quite wild. 
But the Bible teaches us that people become Christians by hearing the message of what Jesus has done. So hearing of His perfect sinless life, hearing of His death in our place for our sins, and hearing how we are made righteous by uh, His grace and we are transformed as we come to Him by faith. And so we who have received this message of the gospel and have been entirely transformed, you see, becoming a Christian is not turning over a new new leaf, it's actually receiving new life. And so we who have been transformed, we have a stewardship, we have a responsibility for what we will do with this gospel message that we have received. We know that one day Jesus will return with his kingdom and he will reign over all of creation. So the Christian life is lived in preparation for that day. So what do we do with the gospel while we wait? That's what this parable forces us to consider. How should we invest our lives? What should we be doing? This actually leads us to the second question that's guiding our conversation. The first question was, what are we preparing for? The return of our king, Jesus himself. So how do I invest my life while I wait for his return? Where Archelaus traveled to Rome hoping to return with his kingdom, but he did not, verse 15 tells us that this nobleman in this parable a.k.a. Jesus, he will return. In this parable, he does return with his kingdom, and he calls for his servants to give an account for how they prepared for his return. Look at verse 15 and following. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. So remember, pause here. Remember, if these minas signify the gospel, the question we will face is, what did you do with the gospel? For the Christian, did you spend your life investing the gospel in the world around you? in the spheres of life in which you operate? What was it that got you up in the morning? Christian, do you realize that everything about your life, your health, your education, your job, your personality, your time, your finances, your skills, your abilities, your relationships, your families, even your hardships and sufferings are given you that you may hold the gospel of Jesus Christ up brightly, that you may be a testimony to others, to the world around you, in your own life, that you might show the all-surpassing glory of Jesus and the miracle and the wonder of the gospel. See, when we think about each of us in this room, and then we think about all the various ways in which we go about our business throughout the week, all the various places in which we work, all the various places in which we live, all the different people we encounter. You, you could, even in a room this size, you could get just manifold experiences and interactions and all sorts of things that we would have throughout the week. And so you could start to try to apply this, and you could really run out. The, the ways to apply it would be exponential if we were to go through every person in this room. But let's think about some ways that we can do this. Among those who are near to you, as ones who have been trusted with this mina, this, this, this gospel stewardship, we have the opportunity to display a hope in God that testifies that you know your heavenly Father loves you and delights in providing for His children. You have our opportunity to show others, to tell others about your Savior who has redeemed you, 
to trust that the Holy Spirit that indwells you and comforts you amidst the turbulence of life, you have the opportunity with your children to teach them the gospel, to model to them how our lives and our our rhythms of life revolve around Jesus and His church. If your family is disinterested in Christianity, maybe you're the only Christian in your family, you have the opportunity to pursue simple, simple, consistent faithfulness to Jesus and His church. Prayerful trust in the Lord that He is powerful to give new life to the spiritually dead. Dear brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus delights in the faith-filled, consistent prayers of His people for those in their life who do not know Him. In your work, you have the opportunity to display the goodness of God as you work hard and do things in an ethical, upright manner. You can model kindness and care towards others, seeking to show dignity and treating co-workers or those under you, not as hurdles to be stepped over or competition that, you are, that, you are, uh, that, that is in the way of your career goals, but as fellow image bearers of God. I remember hearing a story a few years ago of a woman who was fairly new in her company, and she made a, a, a significant mistake. Now, it wasn't anything unethical. It wasn't anything illegal that she did. But it was a big enough mistake that brought considerable hardship to her company and specifically to uh, the office in which she worked. And so she went into a meeting with her superior and her superior's superior. And she knew going into this meeting that she was about to be fired. And understandably so. But as the meeting played out, something strange happened. Her superior took the blame. He said, yes, she made this mistake, but to be honest, I should have trained her better. This was a gap in our training. This was a gap in, in our processes, which her mistake has revealed, but it was not entirely her fault. Don't hold her, her alone responsible for this. In fact, she has done good work in these areas, and she will be an asset to our company going forward in these ways. And she wasn't fired. After the really high up superior left, she looked at her boss and said, um, okay, what was that? She said, in any other meeting or company, I would have been blamed. You would have tried to deflect any blame off of yourself and onto me. You would have tried to protect yourself. And right now, I would be cleaning out my desk and beginning to look for a new job. Her boss kindly deflected, but she pressed the question with him. Eventually, he said, okay, you want to know? He said, I'm a Christian. I don't think I have the responsibility around here to make myself look good at the expense of others. You made a mistake, but I wasn't going to ignore that I, in fact, could have trained you better, and I want to look out for those who are under my authority. So her response to that was, um, excuse me? She said, wow, your faith led you to that? Where exactly do you go to church? This led her to actually checking out Christianity and, I believe, becoming a Christian through this faithful example of her co-worker who held up the gospel brightly in his interactions and care towards her. See, if the gospel, how it humbles you, how it reorients your attitude, see, the gospel tells us that we have sinned against a holy, righteous, perfect, just God. 
We have committed cosmic rebellion against Him. And yet God in His love has, has poured out His grace upon us through Jesus Christ. So the one who has come to Christ by faith has no choice, but if they're going to be honest to themselves, to be humble and generous and gracious towards those that they encounter. And this is a breath of fresh air in a world that has a habit of just chewing people up and spitting them out, is it not? How about your finances? How about your time? There's something that this parable mentions that I don't want to overlook. Perhaps you noticed it as we read it. Do you see in verses 16 and 18 what the reward for good investment of these minas, what that reward is? It's cities. One servant gets authority over ten cities. One servant gets authority over five cities. And we're, we're sitting here saying, what in the world does that mean? You see that in verses 16 and 18. Did you know that the Bible tells us that Jesus will return with His kingdom, and we, His servants, His people, will become co-heirs of His kingdom? We will not become gods. We will not become equal with God in deity. But we will share in the rule of the kingdom of Christ. Not unlike, in some ways, how Adam and Eve, before the fall, before they sinned against God, they were given dominion over creation. It's incredible to think that we have this ministry in situate, seeking to make the kingdom of God known as we serve, as we share the gospel with others, as we go about our regular rhythms and practice of life as a church. Sadly, there aren't other consistently gospel-preaching churches elsewhere in town. None in, and there's none in Cohasset, none that I know of in Marshfield. I could be wrong, but not a lot around us. And yet our Lord would show us before here, you give of your time, you give of your energy, you give of your money to building Christ's church in this town, in surrounding towns. May the Lord open up an opportunity down the road for us to be able to send out a church plant to other towns around us that do not have gospel preaching churches. And the Lord says, you do this and you will do nothing less by investing in the small town of Situate, Massachusetts, investing in these communities that are represented in this room. You give yourself to this and you will one day inherit cities. But He has to change our perspective. He has to change our orientation. How we view ourselves, how we view our lives. You might be aware this coming Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday. One week from today. Kickoff is at 6.30 p.m. between the San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs. I'll be rooting for the 49ers for my own reasons. They're not reasons that you might think are obvious, uh, but I'll, I'll be rooting for the 49ers. I wasn't going to throw that in there, but whatever. Root for whoever you want. Um, I don't have a problem with Taylor Swift. I'm glad she's going to be able to get on her airplane and fly from her after her concert in Tokyo is over on Saturday, the whatever, Saturday the 10th. She's going to get there in time, time difference, and uh, private jets, you have a way of being able to do that. And I hope she has a wonderful time. I just hope her and her boyfriend's hearts are broken at the end of the night. Uh, okay, I, I, I want to be, I, I, a guy that plays for the 49ers grew up one town over from me, so that's the only reason I'm rooting for them. Um, and I don't want the Chiefs to threaten the Patriots dynasty. Um, wow, I got off track here. Okay, so the Super Bowl is, it, the Super Bowl is going to be, th this is the first year that it is in Las Vegas. And as many of you know, Las Vegas has quite a reputation for being able to have a good time. So throughout this week, leading up to the Super Bowl, there's going to be people just flooding into Las Vegas, flooding into Las Vegas. I saw that a lot of airports around Las Vegas, the private parking for private jets flying in is all already booked up, uh, which 
not a problem I have to worry about, but um, the, 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 the city is going to be teeming with excitement. People are going to be flooding into the city, but do you know who is not going to be in Las Vegas this week? The San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs. They fly to the area, I think tomorrow or Tuesday, but they are actually staying at hotel resorts about 25 or 30 miles outside of the city. And it really makes perfect sense, right? They've been preparing to try to reach the Super Bowl all season long. They've been having meetings, they've been having practices, they've been having workouts, they've put their bodies, their minds, their, all their energy towards this goal, and Las Vegas is the kind of place where you can get distracted. So they're staying 25, 30 miles outside of the city. You know, as Christians, sometimes life throws so much at us that can distract us from what the Lord has ordained or, or commissioned us or given us to be doing as His people. And the Lord Jesus in this parable serves to remind us that we've been instructed with the gospel and we have this singular purpose for which He has given us. The stewardship of making Christ known, the stewardship of treasuring Christ, not only making Him known, but treasuring Christ in our lives and being sanctified, being transformed. We don't just receive Christ and then just sit on our thumbs waiting, but we are transformed by the glory of God and by His work and His Word and by the fellowship of the church day by day in our life together. Think about stewarding our relationships to one another in the church. Those of you who are members of this church, we have covenanted together. What does that mean? For a church to covenant together is simply to promise that we will help one another to steward the gospel well, to apply it to our lives as a church, as a corporate community, as well as individually in our lives. Perhaps a good thing to do at the potluck in just a few moments would be to, dis, to, to, to talk with the person across the table. Hey, what's a way that you can invest the gospel specifically in your life today? Maybe it's somebody that you have that you would like to share the gospel with. Or maybe it's applying the hope of the gospel to your heart as you face an uncertain circumstance that has you nervous or worried or wondering if you can trust God's goodness in the face of that circumstance. Another way that we don't necessarily think of stewarding the gospel, but we've been entrusted with, is in understanding our time and our calendar. I encourage you, make attendance to worship a vital priority in your life. Orient your life, your calendar, around the Word of God, the work of God, the ministry of the gospel. Through Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed and you've been brought into His people. We've been made brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God. I encourage you, regularly attend our Sunday morning services, as, uh, or excuse me, our Sunday evening services. In addition to our, attend our Sunday morning services too, that's good. But at these evening services, we particularly pray for our investment of the gospel in others through evangelism, through missions. We pray for the work of God in our church family. We remind ourselves of this stewardship, this responsibility we have as servants entrusted with this mina of the gospel. Another way that we don't necessarily think of is that we've been entrusted with our own sufferings, our own heartbreaks. If you set the eyes of your heart on the work of Jesus Christ in the gospel, you can remember Jesus Christ himself knew heartbreak. He knew rejection. He knew even untimely death and suffering. By setting your eyes on him, you will, understand, you will be able to approach your own sufferings and heartbreaks with hope in his present reign, Hope in the fact that he knows suffering as, as, as one who is entirely 100% human, just like you. And hope in his promised future return, where he will make all things new, where he will wipe the tears from your face. 
Keep the gospel at the forefront of your mind as the hope of your heart. And in your weakness, Jesus will be glorified. Okay, so you, you probably say this and say, okay, Stephen, I, I get it. Invest the gospel, my, uh, the gospel in my life. Let, let it permeate through my relationships, my hopes, my thinking, my planning, all of these things, every nook and cranny of my heart. I get it. But if I'm honest, Stephen, what's the big deal? Well, look at what verses 20 to 23 say. Remember, the two servants who invested the miners received their reward. But now look at the third servant. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest? So this is strange to understand. I'll admit it so. There are debates among scholars as was this third recipient. Was he truly a Christian? Was he not? I don't think he was. I think he heard the gospel. I think he knew the, the answers to like the Christianity 101 final exam. What are the things I need to know? But experientially, his life had not been transformed by it. His life was not spent in service to this King Jesus. He received the mina, but nothing happened. He just said, I'll put it back here for safekeeping until this guy gets back. Jesus is exposing the danger of hollow Christianity that, like I said, can pass the test, but is not applied to lives. This is the heart that keeps Jesus off to the side. But here, whatever is before you, Jesus off to the side, and here, whatever's before you, whatever has your, your true desire, your true passion, your true hunger, your true affection, your true worship, that is what is ultimate to you. And it can be the most precious things in our lives. Now, it's interesting, the servant receives judgment, but he also misses the boat. This call to prepare for the coming of King Jesus is, in one sense, a call to invest your life in what will truly last and provide the greatest return on investment that your soul can know. You were created for eternal things. And Jesus is concerned with your heart and your soul taking hold of this. On October 27th, 2005, a man broke into the Judy Garland Museum in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You know who Judy Garland was? Um, Dorothy in Wizard of Oz. He stole a pair of Dorothy's ruby red slippers that were used in the Wizard of Oz. The problem for the poor man was that he had actually never seen the movie The Wizard of Oz. He did not know that these slippers were an iconic part or piece of American film lore. That's why the slippers were insured for a million dollars. He thought they were insured for that amount because they were adorned with real rubies. He planned to take each of the rubies off of the slippers, and then he would turn around and sell the rubies and profit off of them. Only problem is the shoes did not have real rubies. They just had little pieces of glass that looked like rubies, 
And as he started to peel these small pieces of glass off, and he started to look at them with an expert, he told them, look, these are nothing but glass. They're basically worthless. Jesus wants you and I to let go of the little pieces of glass that we think are rubies in order to totally reorient the perspective of our hearts in understanding how best to understand Him, His work in the church, our world, our lives, our jobs, our relationships, all of these things that Jesus Christ might be the most paramount, central thing, and then our understanding of the gospel and His work for us then flow into how we live and function and operate with all these things. See, if we're not careful, we'll hold whatever it is in our hands and believe it to be of supreme value only to find on the day that matters that these were not real rubies. And we've taken hold of something that is ultimately, eternally worthless. And now what is to come? What are we waiting for? What should we do? We doing? And now what is to come? Look at verses 24 to 26. And he said to those who stood by, this is referencing the guy who just kept a one mina in a handkerchief and didn't do anything with it. He said, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. And he said, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is the warning that we sit under. Now, I encourage us all to hear Jesus' words clearly. He's saying you might hold to a Christian worldview. You might hold to a general practice of attending church quite regularly. But if, if, if the gospel has not truly brought transformation in your life, if the gospel has not brought change where, where, where your, your life is now set apart and you are captivated by the grace of God, surrendering under the authority of the Word of God, trying to walk in fellowship and in relationship with the people of God, he's saying be careful that you have not misunderstood this. Remember, he's telling this parable to his disciples as they enter Jerusalem. He's seeking to reorient their understanding of what the Christian life is and is not. They are expecting from him a, a, a sensational feeling, a sensational experience, all of their wildest dreams coming true. And he is preparing them for a life of service and waiting for his return. And now there's a few things that we have to understand here as we read this parable. And one of these might be a question you've been waiting to ask uh, uh, since we read this for the first time. And it might be something like this. Stephen, Jesus is using Archelaus, who was this terrible, impulsive, petulant child of a ruler, and wrought horrific suffering on the people of Israel, and it sounds like he's using him as a positive example. What gives there? Here's what's happening. Jesus is calling to mind of his audience an example that they were all familiar with, including the, serve, the, the, the citizens of the town going and saying, we don't want that guy to rule over us. But he's reorienting the, our perspective on this in a couple of ways. One of which is he's reorienting our perspective on, us, on this and saying, okay, Jesus is the king who will return with his kingdom. Archelaus was not. 
And second, he's saying Jesus is the king who's willing to share his kingdom as he gave ten cities, five cities, as he gives servants, uh, cities out to his servants who steward that gospel, who, 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 who invested that mina, who gave of their lives for the sake of the gospel. So he's not, a, he's not a, a, a king who is hoarding all the glory for himself rather, or, or all the possessions for himself. Rather, he is in his kindness giving it out to his faithful servants. So he's a king who is coming back with his kingdom. He's a king who is sharing his kingdom. And third, he's a king who is entirely holy and worthy of the praise and worship of the people of his kingdom. And here's what we have to understand. Look at verse 27. This, this is a, you might find this quite difficult. I, I found it quite difficult when I started preparing this. Verse 27, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now keep in mind, this is a parable. He's calling their minds back to events surrounding Archelaus and the people he had slaughtered. But here's what I think this is illustrating. I think what Jesus is illustrating here is a warning towards those who would have a casual faith towards him where he's basically saying, do you see this little mid-level ruler who wasn't even king? He's just a guy on a power trip. And what did he do to those who opposed him? What was the punishment they endured? And then he says, I am warning you against a mindset, an attitude towards God. And Jesus is saying an attitude towards me, the Son of God, that would make light of me, that feels like your obedience to me, your fellowship with me, your following me, is actually more, nothing more than a negotiation where you do what you want to do and not what I command of you. And he's saying, if this little mid-level ruler who can't even become king can come in severe judgment on those who oppose him, what makes you think you can saunter into my presence and not endure the righteous judgment of the God that you have rejected? I think that's kind of the idea of what's going on here. I've heard it said before, far too many of us, we can't even, don't do this, it's not good for your health, but maybe after you walk outside today and you look up into the sky, you know that, th that big shining orb is the sun. We haven't seen it in a couple of weeks, but that's what it is. Try to stare into the, right into the sun. How long can you do that? Maybe half a second? I don't recommend any longer than that. I've heard it said before, far too many of us know that we can't stare into the sun for longer than a second, and yet we think we're going to be able to walk into the presence of our creator, uh, of the sun's creator, and tell him how it is. So how do I respond to this? Christian, press on in knowing that your life is of supreme importance, supreme value, supreme purpose in following Christ and making Him glorious. Pray for Him to give opportunities for you to continue to steward the gospel you've received. And know that our Lord Jesus looks upon you with the smile of God's grace and He has cities awaiting you. Now perhaps if you feel like, okay, I, I, I haven't stewarded this very well. There are ways in which I, I, I need to consider my understanding of what it means to follow Christ. I need to consider what it means to walk in obedience to Him, what it means to, to, to live my life and uh, surrendered before Him. Then understand where the Jesus who said these things was going. He was entering Jerusalem where people wanted to make Him a king. 
But he entered Jerusalem knowing that he was going to die. And dear one who struggles with how you have stewarded that gift of the gospel in your life. Maybe you look back on decades and you say, I don't think I have much time left. What about me? Look to our Lord in faith. Run to Him in repentance. Confessing perhaps how you have squandered that. But allow Him to make you whole. And hear His words that you will be with Him. And ask Him to give you faithfulness for whatever journey you have still to go. And know that He is with you. Pray that His grace would sustain you. And may we all spend ourselves investing the gospel in every sphere of our lives and our world.